0: I invite you to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, and we're gonna finish off 1 John chapter 3 uh, this morning, talking about dealing with doubt. Um, someone said to me recently, why haven't you been quoting C.S. Lewis? Um, so I thought I would rectify that this morning and quote C.S. Lewis. You know he's so creative and and so insightful, and that's one of the reasons I, I love reading Lewis. Um, I think his maybe his most creative work is the Screw Tape Letters, and it's this uh, uh, this fictional demon Wormwood, who is instructing his apprentice demon Screw Tape, to build on the doubts that often occur, once uh, the initial spiritual and emotional excitement of coming to faith in Christ wears off. Uh, And what Lewis says here is a helpful reminder that we are in a spiritual battle and the enemy will do anything in his power to make us doubt and to pour water on our enthusiasm. So here's what he writes. So remember, this is one demon writing to another demon about how to discourage Christians. So here's what Lewis writes. Let him, the Christian, assume that the enthusiasm of his conversion might have been expected to last and ought to have lasted forever, and that his present dryness is an equally permanent condition. Having once got this misconception well fixed in his head, you may then proceed in various ways it all depends on whether your man is the desponding type who can be tempted to despair or the well-wishful the wishful thinking type who can be assured that all is well make him doubt whether the first days of his christianity were not perhaps a little excessive talk to him about moderation in all things if you can get if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point you can feel quite happy about his soul a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and much more amusing so satan will do anything he can to encourage doubts among believers to make our faith lukewarm. That's Satan's goal. He's out to destroy us. Uh, The passage we're looking at today is telling us that what we're to do when we doubt. It's telling us what what we can do when we have doubts. Uh, What what we can do when we need assurance. Uh, So verse 19 refers to setting our hearts at rest. How do we do that? So let's read our passage Uh, First John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is God's word. So there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. I like the way Henry Drummond put it. He's got a quote on the the top of your outline. Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief, Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. So how do we deal with doubt when we have it? The first thing we need to do when we doubt is to be grateful for God's grace. Thank him for his grace. Um, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So the first word this or Uh, in some translations by this, is referring back to what we looked at last week, uh, the topic of loving each other. Uh, Like, look at verse 18, little children, don't just say you love one another, but show it by your actions. So, verse 19 then is really when, as a Christian family, we know we belong to the truth. The truth here is the truth of Scripture. Like it says in Psalm 119, verse 160, and that reference is not on your outline, but Psalm 119, verses, verse 160, This says, all your words are true. Um, it's like the prayer that Jesus prays in the great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when he says, sanctify them. He prays for his disciples, really the same prayers for us. Sanctify them by the truth your word is truth. And so God's words are true. When we come into God's presence, it will be awesome, <clears throat> because hopefully he'll ask us what we've been doing, and hopefully we'll be able to say, well, we, we love you, Father. And we have been keeping your commandments, including your commandment to love each other. And we've been doing our best to fulfill the great commission that you gave us, the last command that you gave us. And Hopefully, God's response will be back to us. You've been acting like my children, and I love that. And I see the fruit of the Spirit in your lives, love and joy and peace and patience and so on. And I see the fruit of other Christians in your lives. And that's the way it should be. And, and so I, I know you're glorifying me in all your efforts and all you do, and so well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear from him. And so, you know what I hear about all the time? I hear all the time about people in our family right here at Claremont Emanuel who are sick. And people who go to visit them. People who, have a, a, who, who make a, a concerted effort to pray for them. I see you doing that almost every day, if not for sure every week. I see people in, in, in our family right here at Claremont Emanuel who sometimes need a ride to the hospital or wherever. And I see other people say, hey, I'll take him. I'm available. I'll help out. I, I see that all the time. And I want you to be encouraged because this is a family that obviously loves each other. And that's important. That's what he tells us that we're supposed to do. So I want to begin with the middle of verse 20 as we move to verse 20. So in the middle of it says, we know that God is greater than our hearts. If we're not at rest in God's presence, if our heart does does condemn us, we don't lose our salvation. Uh, God's presence is intimidating, but we can stand with him, before him with a confident heart and a clear conscience. That's our goal. Uh, the Apostle Paul, it says of him in Acts 24, excuse me, forgot. he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before men. That's in Acts 24, verse 16. That's what Paul prays. That's his goal. That should be our goal, that we are constantly confessing our sin before God and receiving his forgiveness. God will still hear our prayers even if we're in the midst of doubt. When we fail him, this is on your outline, he won't fail us. In Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Isn't he an amazing God? Our God is faithful even to us, even when we're not faithful to him. He wants to, to us to know that. Grace doesn't just change. Our eternal circumstances, grace transforms us now. God's grace transforms us right now. Grace, yes, it rescues us from eternal death, but grace also rescues us from ourselves by making us a new creation in Christ and then helping us live that out in our daily lives. I love the way Dallas Willard puts it um, as an author used to teach philosophy at USC. And he says this, we often believe that only sinners need grace when they come to faith in Christ, or that the only times we need grace are times of guilt. And then he says this, saints burn far more grace than sinners could. They burn it in the way a jet burns rocket fuel. Salvation means that not only am I forgiven by grace, he continues, but I'm also learning to live by grace. This is a part of what makes boasting for any good thing that comes out of me as unthinkable as boasting for any sin forgiven in me. In either case, it is a gift of grace. And so God's grace is responsible for forgiving my sin, he's saying, but it's also responsible for every good thing that I do. And now the first part of verse 20. Uh, look at verse 20 in your on your Bibles. The first part it begins, verse 20, with if our hearts condemn us. So when we realize as, as we examine our hearts that maybe we're shocked at what we find, uh, our, our hearts, Jeremiah says, the prophet, are deceitful and desperately wicked. So that's what we see when we look in our hearts. But we need to understand that, uh, of course we need to understand our sin and how fall how far short of God's grace that we fall, of God's perfection. And what John here, oh boy, excuse me, what John here is saying is that this is especially true when we talk about loving each other. I've talked to people, for example, who struggle with addictions and they've said, you know, I've prayed about this and I just don't feel that I have any sense of even assurance of my salvation. I failed God over and over and over again. How can God forgive me when I keep failing him like this? I keep struggling. I keep praying, but I keep struggling. And my response to them is, keep praying. Don't give up the struggle. Okay, you may not have assurance of your salvation right now, but it's not based on what you feel. It's based on God's word. And your heart condemns you. Maybe your heart condemns you, but but you just keep dealing with that. You can count on God to meet you right where you're at and to continue to deal with you right where you're at. You know, people sometimes get so bogged down with worry. I I think that's all of us on one level or another. There are some people who say, you know, even my anxieties get anxiety. Uh, We get so anxious about things. But even the, fact that we're, even the fact that we're worrying can get us down. But John is saying here that we can have confidence in God even when we're afraid, even when we're afraid of the future, even when we're afraid of our health, even when we're afraid of rejection or whatever it might be. Here's what God says to you this morning. It's just what David the psalmist said. This is for all of us. In Psalm 27, the Lord is my light, And my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We don't need to fear anybody. The Lord is the refuge and stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though a host encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, even in this will I be confident that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything in verse twenty that means that 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 we 're to be bold and and confident before god, and we're, be, we're we're secure in our relationship with God. God gives us calm in the midst of confusion in the midst of all that 's going on around us. You know some years ago uh, we had somebody um, who was in our choir and they had a Uh, an encounter with a couple people that they'd never seen before who were uh, like walking through our campus and it made this person feel very uncomfortable. That wasn't the way um, they normally were with people, but just made them feel really uncomfortable. And so at the time, we had a a gal in our church who was uh, a member of the FBI and I, I called her and I said what had happened. And she said, let me look into it and asked me what time it happened. And she said, you know, I was able to tap into security cameras all the way up the street and followed them all the way into up Claremont Drive. And I just don't think from observing them for this you know, time that you really don't have anything to worry about. And I said, you tapped into what? <laughs> you tapped into people's security cameras? And she said, yeah, we can do that. You know, it made me think, everybody's watching us all the time. <laughs> even when we don't want them to. And and here's what it says in, in Hebrews 4. It says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if it feels like people are watching us, trust me, God is really watching us. He is watching over us and he is watching us. And so the courage and the calm that God provides gives us a living message that, that we can live out the way we, in front of other people to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, especially when we're afraid, especially when we're stressed out. You know, there was a, a pastor, whose name was Dennis Diling, who was a church planter and who had been sent uh, to Mindanao, Philippines to start a church. And people started coming to the church and the church started growing and the pastor said, man, I'd love to build a building uh, for this church where the church can meet. And he found a vacant lot that had been vacant apparently for 20 years and he inquired everywhere about who owned this lot and he couldn't find the owner. And he asked in the end, the city, and the city gave him permission to build a home or build a, a church on this on this uh, a church building on this vacant lot. Well, it wasn't long after they had completed the building, somebody showed up and said, this property belongs to me. You need to abandon it. Get out of here. And, um, and this guy was really angry, so angry that he actually hired an assassin to kill the pastor. Well, word got out that that was happening, and everywhere the pastor went, people in the church were surrounding the pastor. He was like, they had this entourage of people always with him everywhere he went, and they were protecting him, and when this assassin guy saw that and realized what happened, word got out that he was the assassin, and and someone said, man, you need to leave this pastor alone. The assassin actually went to the police and said, I was hired to do this. And even the police said, leave this guy alone and, you know, don't don't even think about doing this. And they they said, we'll get to the bottom of this. Well, the assassin ended up going and talking to the pastor and the crowd of people he had around him and said, uh, you need to go, you should go and talk to the owner of this property and, and try to make a deal with him about buying the property and, and explain to him what the situation is. And so the owner and, and his entourage went to talk to this, owner, the, the pastor went to talk to this owner, and, um, and the owner was open, surprisingly, and they said, you know, our people are rather poor. It would take us years to, to pay this off, but we can pay you on a regular basis and, and, and pay you off, and, uh, you know, the owner wasn't initially real receptive to it, but he said, I'll consider it, and, um, and the pastor said, we're having a Thanksgiving service, and we'd like to invite you to come, never thinking you would come. Well, he came this man who wanted to kill the pastor came to the service and God obviously touched his heart because afterwards he came to the pastor and he said, you know what? I've decided to give you the property. It's all yours. You don't have to pay for it. But isn't that the way God works? God shows us in, that's a big way, but oftentimes just in small ways, he will show us and remind us of his grace in our lives. It's amazing how God cares for us. And he shows us he cares for us. And he says in 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. That's his invitation to you this morning, to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And so again, verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And so instead of focusing on your doubts, look instead to the specific acts of love that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and also through you to others. Let that be the evidence, John says, that God is at work in your hearts and that you don't need to doubt. I love the way Warren Wearsby put it. <clears throat> it's a quote on your outline. He says, when our delight is in the love of God, our desires will be in the will of God. And there is no safer place in the world for you to be, even if there's a lot of bad stuff going on around you, than in the center of God's will. That's what what he wants for you, to be in the center of his will. Paul expresses it so well, this whole idea that John is talking about in Romans chapter 8. He says this, let's read it out loud together. It's on your outline, Romans 8, 31 to 34. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Amen. And the second thing to do when we doubt is to be bold in prayer. In verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this is the second time in the letter, the letter to 1 John uh, that we're looking at that the word confidence has been used. So twice it's used to refer to the confidence that we have before God at, on the day of judgment. Like in 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed uh, before him at his coming. And then also 1 John 4, 17, you've got those references on your outline. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And then we have confidence before God here so that twice the word is used about confidence at judgment, twice it's used about the confidence that we can have when we come before God to pray. Like right here, we have confidence before God, verse 21. Um, And the idea of confidence, as this is on your outline, is literally a complete freedom to speak our minds without any fear or shame. We can be honest with God. We're not telling God something new when we tell him what's on our heart. We're not telling God something new and we tell him our doubts or our fears or whatever we tell him. He knows what's on our hearts already. Our confidence is in the Lord. You know, there's a group of, of trapeze artists that are called the flying rudellas. And they explain that there's a special relationship between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one who lets go and the catcher, is the one that catches him. And as the flyer swings high above the crowd and, and on the trapeze, the moment comes where he lets go and he arcs himself out into the air. And his job is to remain as still as possible as he's flying through the air um, and, and then to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to catch him. And so one of the flying rudellas said it like this, the flyer must never try to catch The catcher, the flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. And I love that as a picture of how we're to learn to wait on the Lord and to be of good courage and to keep waiting, knowing that God will catch us as we boldly give him our requests. We're like that flyer who is as still as possible before God waiting for God to catch us and knowing that he will. And this would be amazing enough, just that in this verse, but there's more, but there's more. We have confidence in approaching God, but we also have confidence that our prayers are answered. Look at the beginning of verse 22, and that we receive from him some things we ask for. No, that's not what it says. Anything we ask So what he's saying is not just some of your prayers will be answered, but that if we meet these criteria that he's talking about, all of our prayers will be answered. And so the the conditions that he's talking about, the criteria is that, and that's the next bullet point, that we're to be submissive to God. We're to be submissive to God. Specifically, the passage says, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So John is not about an external legalism that's motivated by pride, that's not at all what he's after. He's after a heartfelt obedience. That's what God wants from each of us. Uh, It's like what Jesus said, what John recorded in John chapter 15, when he writes, if if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But there are two conditions there, right? Us abiding in him... and his words abiding in us. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what is your motivation to please the Lord? You've got that question on the outline because it's something that, as you go back over these notes, I hope you'll take some time to think about. What is my motivation? Doing what pleases him should motivate everything we do to glorify him should be our motivation. So that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of God. It's like the benediction in in Hebrews says, when, when it says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then the second thing that we're to do when we need assurance before God is have faith in Jesus and be obedient. That's the next point, number two on your outline. What what John is saying in verse 23 is don't say you believe in Jesus and then in the next breath say, you know, I just don't like this about so-and-so. That's not the way we talk. You ever say that to your kids, parents? That's not the way we talk. And that's not the way we talk in our family. Uh, John isn't writing about a love that we just talk about either. He's writing about one that's expressed like we talked about earlier in genuine concern for other people. We could almost say that verse 23, look again at verse 23, is a summary of the Christian life in a nutshell. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And the word command is singular and that's a shift from the plural commands in verse 22. And what is happening here is John is combining both the concept of believing in Jesus with the loving of the family of God into one single action. And so you've got this on your outline. We have, what we have is one command with two parts, believe and love. Believe God, believe Christ, trust in him, rely on him, cling to him and love each other. Love him and love each other. And John himself tells us in his own gospel uh, that he wrote this gospel so that people would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. So at the end of the gospel of John, he writes, and it's on your outline in John chapter 20, he says, but these are written, all these words are written, the whole gospel of John is written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <clears throat> now notice how the, the key verse, this key verse in, in, in John's gospel contains five words that we find in 1 John 3, verse 23. The words believe, the word name, the word son, and the word Jesus Christ. Those five words are all in this verse. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And then finally, when you need assurance, remember that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So John mentions the Holy Spirit, not as a subjective witness, but as an objective witness. And John Stott, I think, writes this great commentary about this verse. It might be a little hard to follow, but I'll explain it as we go through. It's on your outline so you can follow. The spirit whose presence is the test of Christ's abiding in us, manifests himself objectively in our life and conduct. How is it objective? Because you can see it in your life. You can see it in the way you live. It is he, the Holy Spirit, who, first of all, inspires us, and you can circle that word inspires, inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh, as John immediately proceeds to show. It is also he who empowers, and you can circle that word empowers, empowers us to live righteously and love the brethren. So it's the Holy Spirit in us that inspires us and empowers us to love God and love each other. So if we would assure our hearts, in other words, if you have doubts, when they accuse and condemn you, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working. And particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ, has the Spirit enabled you to believe, and to obey God's commandments to love the brethren. For the condition of abiding, that's the comprehensive obedience at the first part of verse 24. And then the evidence of abiding is the gift of the Spirit in the last part of verse 24. So if you want assurance, he's saying, ask yourself, has the Holy Spirit enabled me to believe in Christ? That should be an assurance for you. And secondly, is the Holy Spirit helping me to live in obedience? Do you desire to be obedient to God? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So again, verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. That's the comprehensive obedience. And this is how we know he lives in us. Here's the evidence of abiding. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the gift of the Spirit. So how does this work out in the body of Christ? How does this work out as we love one another? That's the context here. You know, we don't choose who comes to this church. God brings you. God's brought you here this morning. God brings you. And, and we're really different from each other. And we look at each other and we look around and we think, wow, I wouldn't maybe naturally be attracted to that person or to go hang out with them, even knowing them. But, but it's, isn't it beautiful what God does? What God does is he brings us here, he unites us together in the one thing we all have in common, and that is Jesus. That is being at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, all distinctions are wiped away. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And maybe this has put you in a position sometime when you are face-to-face with someone in this church that you don't think, I don't think I even like this person but you know you're commanded to love them. And so you say, you know, I'm gonna draw on this love of God that has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit who has been given to me, and by God's grace, I'm going to love the people that are in front of me because that's what the body of Christ does. That's what the family of God does. That's who we are. It's when we're disobedient that the church doesn't work. And so we're obedient to follow God and what he wants for our lives. And I think it's interesting that John says in verse 24 that it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that serves as the means of knowing that, we, that, that God abides in us. And we're abiding in him as we're obedient to him. And so on your outline you have this, our keeping God's commandments is the evidence that we're abiding in him. Obedience is, is key here. In one sense, as we're genuine believers and we're always abiding in Christ in virtue of the fact that he saved us from eternal damnation, that we're saved with eternal salvation. That's God's gift to us. In another sense, we're only abiding in Christ as we're obedient to follow his will. And so this takes us really back to the start of chapter 3. Because it reminds us, and this is on your outline, that the cure for doubt is not found in subjective experience, but in knowledge. In knowledge. That's one of the key words in 1 John that, we, that you may know. John speaks positively here of the presence of the Holy Spirit, but Paul uses negative terms to say the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the only way to know you're a believer is to have the Spirit of Christ. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you know, this is maybe a dumb example, but in, I don't know if you remember this Gatorade commercial a while back, and it, the, 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 the kind of the catch line was, is it in you? And you saw these athletes drinking Gatorade, purple Gatorade, and the ones who were drinking purple Gatorade were sweating purple sweat. I know it's kind of gross. That's the way it was. But <clears throat> when I, th- I thought of that, when I thought of this passage, because it, 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 it resonates with what's, what we're learning here, what verse 24 says. God promises an internal change by the Holy Spirit. Not that we sweat the Holy Spirit. I didn't mean that. But, but that, we, that that the, uh, the Holy Spirit, we, we act as if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We love other people. We're loving them because the Holy Spirit in us. And that's the way that we're assured that the Spirit lives in us. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, what do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you that you have from God and you are not your own. We belong to him. So just let me finish with this. If you struggle with doubts, um, here's a, a couple words of advice. First of all, you've got these on your outline, hang on, hang on. It's completely normal to have questions, and so don't beat yourself up. But it's, it's a great thing to be honest. It's a great thing to search out answers to questions. That's why we have a whole part of theology called apologetics, which is a, how to give a defense of our faith. Sounds like we should apologize for our faith, but that's not what it means. It means how to give a defense of our faith. But also, don't be content to stay in a place of doubt. Like one of my seminary professors said, if you have a question about a passage, write a question mark in the margin. But make sure you write it in pencil because when it, answers, when it gets answered, you can erase the, the question mark. Uh, and sometimes it'll get answered right away. Sometimes it'll be maybe years later. But all of my question marks have been erased from my Bible. <laughs> um, and that's okay to have questions. But also don't be content to stay in a place of doubt Doubts and questions are an important part of your journey, but they're not where you want to end up. Secondly, doubt your doubts. Doubts don't win just because they're doubts. Lean into them. In other words, investigate them. Search for an answer. The answers are there. We want to believe according to the truth, and so weigh your beliefs in light of your doubts. Um, And and the truth of God is what we're after, and there are a lot of great Christian answers out there. I've given you some some great resources. All of those are really good. I think my favorite would be the one in the middle. I'm glad you asked by Kenneth Boa. It's a really good book. And then finally, stay curious. Stay curious. Keep asking questions. You can have a profound confidence in the truth of Christianity but still ask deep and difficult questions. And you will find the truth. So keep seeking. Let's pray.